It's Friday evening. You're watching Navarro Live. I'm Michael Walker, and I'm joined by Aaron Bastani. Aaron, how are you doing? Michael, extraordinarily well. I've been wearing too many shirts, and my, my arms are suitably pasty and pale. It's the summertime. Sun's out, gun's out. Let's do it. <laughs> Sun's out, guns out, uh, which is appropriate because we are leading the show today with a climate story, Labour somewhat watering down its pledge. And we'll be speaking to someone from Greenpeace. Um, also tonight, the Tory MP who has thrown her toys out the pram um, for not getting a peerage. She has stood down. You can guess who, you probably can guess who. Not too difficult. Um, we will also be looking at a big blow-by-blow showdown between Piers Morgan and Noam Chomsky. I didn't see that one coming. And we will be talking um, about some pretty tragic stories about how the Tories have ruined the lives of certain pensioners. Let's get going with our first story. Since Keir Starmer abandoned all his leadership pledges, progressives have had less and less reason to vote Labour. However, if there still remained one standout policy to distinguish them from the Tories, it was this. Here's Shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeves speaking at Labour's 2021 conference. I can announce today Labour's Climate Investment Pledge, an additional £28 billion of capital investment in our country's green transition for each and every year of this decade. I will be a responsible Chancellor. I will be Britain's first Green Chancellor. Conference, that is what a Labour government will do. That was Rachel Rees promising an extra £28 billion in capital investment every year this decade. So presumably starting whenever Labour entered power. They can't do it when they're not in power. Um, That pledge was repeated by Keir Starmer in 2022. Labour is committed to a climate investment pledge worth £28 billion until 2030. And we see that pledge as as a down payment that will unlock the private investment which delivers the next generation of jobs. But in recent months, that pledge has come under pressure. And this morning, Rachel Reeves suggested a modification to the offer. The £28 billion will not be spent every year from the day Labour enter government. Rather, that's an amount they will reach by the end of the first parliament in which they're in power. She explained the move to Justin Webb on Radio 4. Kia, Ed and me are all on the same page on this. We know uh, that unless we have this green prosperity plan, those jobs and those investments will go um, elsewhere, but that everything that we do must rest on these pillars of uh, economic and, and fiscal responsibility and security, which are so important for ordinary families around the country and are absolutely essential for any plan for growth and prosperity. But also, look, we need to put the infrastructure in place. We need to get the skills in place to be able to deliver our green prosperity plan and get value for money for taxpayers uh, as well. And there are things that we can do without spending money, like reforming the planning sure, system. Yeah. You know, but, when I was in no, New York, but, but Justin, I, I'm sorry, I just got to tell you off there because it, the, the money side of this is so important this morning. Just, just to be absolutely clear, the plan now, you say you're going to ramp up. Are you still saying you will get to 28 billion, that that is the plan in the first parliament? Yes, yes. We will get to the 28 billion. It will be in the second half of the first parliament, but we will get to that 28 billion. And that is what is needed to secure those jobs and those investment. And the reason I'm confident is that I'm confident that our plans built on the fiscal rules, but our growth plans, whether that is our modern industrial strategy, our reforms to the planning rules, our uh, changes on business rates to help small businesses and start up businesses, 
businesses? Are plans to make Britain the best place to start and grow a business? So earlier in that same interview, Reeves blamed the disastrous Liz Truss government for crashing the economy and so causing Labour to have to modify or water down their plans. Um, So how big a deal is this delay? Commentators and policy wonks are divided. James Medway, who we had on Wednesday's show, said this in response, big win for neoliberal retreads like Mandelson. It's one thing to get knocked off course once you're in government. It's another to manage the same trick before you've even got there and leaves the gap between labour analysis and prescription even bigger. Gift for Greens and Tories. Um, Karis Roberts, who heads up the IPPR think tank, had a different take. So she said this, the bottom line of Reeves' announcement is that Labour has recommitted to ambitious investment and industrial policy to reach net zero and generate jobs. Phasing this in was always going to be necessary for good investments. To discuss Labour's climate pledges, I'm joined by Will McCallum, who is co-executive director at Greenpeace UK. Thank you so much for joining us. What's your initial take on this new announcement from from Labour? Are you disappointed that their £28 billion is going to be delayed? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I listened to the interview live this morning with Rachel Reeves and just thought, why are you doing this so far out from the election? Why are we already creating a mood music that said that such an ambitious and actually quite credible climate plan can be undermined? So really quite disappointed. Uh, Definitely means some reassuring noises over the course of the day. You know, we've seen a number of front bench shadow cabinet uh, members coming out to say absolutely 28 billion, and really that's what we need. And what we need now is to see them say, well, what's that 28 billion going to be spent on? Because I think we, one is why it's easy to undermine a big number like 28 billion is because people don't really understand what it's going to be spent on. So looking ahead to Keir Starmer's speech next week in Aberdeen, we want to see him actually lay out some of what that 28 billion is going to be spent on so people can start to engage with this plan and actually start to see what's in it for them. The argument to me, I mean, I don't like all these arguments about fiscal rules. I think saying the fiscal rule is that, you know, the red line and the climate is sort of secondary, is is getting things the, getting things the wrong way around. The argument I do find a bit more persuasive is that spending £28 billion in year one might be difficult. There isn't yet the workforce to do this. There might not yet be the, you know, the capacity to suddenly get £28 billion out of the door. Is there not some some argument that actually you probably will have to work your way up to this amount? No. This is investment. This is investment for jobs. This is investment for green prosperity. It's literally called the Green Prosperity Plan. If you don't spend as much money as they've committed, you will have less return on that investment. Uh, so we need this money to be spent. It pays for itself. It's one of the easiest investments this government will ever make because green technology, a green prosperity plan is absolutely what we need. I suppose the other side to it, though, is is you know, the opportunity cost. What happens if you don't spend it? It's not just fewer jobs. It's not just uh, a weaker economy. You know, we're racing against the EU and the US when it comes to green subsidies. And this plan was a credible attempt to put the UK on the map uh, in relation to to Biden's Inflation Reduction Act, for example. Um, It's also, you know, what fiscal rules don't have climate risk incorporated with them in 2023? If your fiscal rules aren't looking at the Bank of England's own advice on climate risk, 
then they're not good rules. And you have to start thinking in those terms. You know, we are not in 2010. We are not in 2005. We're not in 1997. Climate risk is a genuine threat to fiscal stability. And so our fiscal rules have to appreciate that. So aside from the fact it will pay for itself, aside from the fact that 28 billion really is not that much money when you're looking at the number of jobs it's going to create, we actually also have to look at, well, what are the greatest threats to our economic stability? It is climate change. And this money is meant to help with that. Talk about another climate policy area. So Labour have committed to granting no new licences for oil and gas fields, especially um, in the North Sea. Um, this morning, this is what Rachel Reeves said about that. There's going to be a role for oil and gas until the 2050s, and we will work with businesses and trade unions uh, to ensure that we can uh, get that uh, oil and gas out of the ground because it's an important part of our uh, energy mix. But we want to secure jobs in industries that have got uh, decades ahead of them, and we want to work with those businesses and with our trade unions uh, to ensure that we can get jobs in hydrogen, in carbon capture and storage, so people who are working in oil and gas uh, 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 this year and in years to come can then work in good jobs, paying decent wages, good unionised jobs in industries like carbon capture and hydrogen, where there is a race on to, to get those investment and those jobs. We've got a real opportunity because of North Sea oil and gas to be leaders in these industries. And as we transition uh, there, we've got to get that investment in. So there's a really important future for people working in oil and gas, mm. in oil and gas today and in hydrogen and carbon capture in the future. Part of that seemed, you know, the kind of thing that a Labour politician should be saying. People who are working in oil and gas, those they can be reskilled and go into the green sector. The bit that stood out for me, though, was uh, she was saying there is a role for oil and gas until the 2050s. Now, we're obviously supposed to be at net zero in 2050. Um, Will, do you think there is a role for oil and gas until the 2050s? There is a role for oil and gas for a little while longer. And that's why Labour's policy of no new oil and gas exploration was such a sensible one. Again, we're seeing sensible, credible and ambitious. Yes, they are ambitious. They, you know, they are world leading. Very few economies on the scale of the UK are looking at anything like the ambition that, that the, the Labour Party's current policies are, are pledging to commit to. But they are, they have to keep them because this is the only way out of the climate emergency. The only way out is to stop new oil and gas exploration and to invest in a green prosperity plan. They presented that last year. They presented these flagship green policies. We all cheerleaded. We all stood there and said, well done. This is what a credible climate plan looks like. And now we are just starting to see that mood music that says, oh, well, actually, we'll tone it down there. Well, actually going to scale up gradually. Well, actually, uh, there's a role for oil and gas well into the 2050s. Now, you're right, we're committed to net zero long before then. So there shouldn't be a role into the 2050s. That's not to say there isn't a role for quite a few years to come, certainly long enough years to take care of workers in the fossil fuel industry. And that's what the 28 billion is meant to be paying for. It's that transition fund to take oil workers and North Sea oil workers, oil and gas workers from one industry into another. That is one of the things this green investment plan is meant to pay for. Finally, I want to ask you about one policy area which you know falls into this package of decarbonizing the energy system. Both Labour and the Tories seem to agree nuclear is part of the energy mix of the future. What's Greenpeace's current view on, on nuclear at the moment? Why are we trying to solve the last problem first? Now, renewables can and will deliver the vast, vast, vast majority of our energy mix. If you look at the way renewables are scaling up right the way across the world and in the UK, 
there is no need to be talking about nuclear nuclear energy in the UK is makes absolutely zero economic sense. There is no reason for it. We have the Saudi Arabia of wind in our North Sea. We should be upscaling our, our wind. You know, there are so many offshore wind farms currently locked up in outdated, incredibly bureaucratic planning processes that we need to see accelerated if we want to meet our climate commitments. So when somebody asks about nuclear, I just say, why are we solving the last problem first? We have to get on with the technologies that we know can deliver in the timescales we've got. My understanding with nuclear is that we are going to be looking into the long term. So, you know, there's there's always these videos shared of, I think Nick Clegg was in one, Caroline Lucas was in another sort of 10 years ago saying, what's the point in new nuclear? It won't come online until 2022, right? So the future tends to arrive, right? And uh, the argument I hear in favor of nuclear is that, yes, we want renewables like wind to give us the vast majority of our energy. But because of intermittency, sometimes the wind doesn't blow. Sometimes the sun doesn't shine. Sometimes that happens at the same time. We will need some nuclear to provide you know, say the last 15% of our energy mix. You don't, you don't buy that. You think that it can all 100% come from renewables. It's 2023, and they said that in 2010, about 2022, and that nuclear power station that they were talking about has still not been built. And the reason it's not been built is because it was so expensive. You know, we, we, the reason that nuclear power plant hasn't been built was because it was a Chinese state-owned company, and the UK government decided on its security analysis that that wasn't a very good idea. So, Talk to me about pipe dreams by all means, but it's far less of a pipe dream to imagine that 100% of our energy will be produced by renewables than it is to imagine that a nuclear power station sometime in the future will somehow be affordable. We have to concentrate on the here and now, and that is renewables at scale. It is insulating our houses. It's providing warm homes for people so they're not choosing between heating and eating. You know, these are solutions at our fingertips right here, right now. And once we've implemented all of those, maybe I can come back and have a conversation about nuclear. We should get you back on to have a proper conversation about nuclear. I have to say, it's not really my area of expertise. Aaron, what is your take on this? I don't want you to come straight in with your view on nuclear because we've lost Will now. So you, you, he won't be able to defend Greenpeace's position. So I want your, your position, especially on, on this move from the Labour Party, let's say. Michael, I've been making a list and it might not be Christmas, but I've been checking it twice. <laughs> I have many misgivings about what Rachel Reeves has been saying today. So first of all, <laughs> the politics of this, the politics of this astonishing Michael, you're going to seek re-election after five years, right? You're going to get in in 2024. Realistically, Labour at present would be elected with a big majority, lots of political capital. You are going to then be looking to get re-elected by 2029. By 2029, you're going to need to demonstrate to the electorate you've executed and delivered on things that matter to them. There is no point not doing this and then say 28, 29, start to ramp up the thing, and you go into the next general election without actually showing results and saying, well, we're spending all this money. Look at all the spreadsheets. Very new labor, by the way. Very Rachel Reeves. We look at the spreadsheets, and I've done the cost benefit and all this. No, no, no. You're going to have to show people, look, we've built this. We've done this. These jobs now exist. So I think there's a political argument there, which seems weak to me. Secondly, that point of political capital. Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who was the US president in 1933, he executes what's now known as the New Deal. He had a program for his first 100 days because he knew that two things were critical. Firstly, the country was in a depression and he had to bring them out of it through an economic stimulus. Secondly, he understood there would be immense interests mobilized against what he planned to do, so he had to act quickly and decisively. It was called the first 100 days. That's where this whole political meme of the first 100 days, it's where it comes from, FDR and the New Deal. Labour is saying the complete opposite. 
We're going to inherit an awful economy. There's going to really be very low economic growth. You know, the IMF is now saying 0.4% growth this year. We've got massive population growth. So realistically, per capita, we're in a recession. We've had very low economic growth for 15 years. And Labour will have a lot of political capital and they're going to say, you know what? We're not going to use it. We're not going to use it. Opposite of FDR. Um, reminiscent also of Obamacare, right? After 2008, Obama kind of tries to compromise and dither and then nothing really gets done by 2010. Thirdly, um, this, this, this sort of this safe space, this happy place that Rachel Reeves went to, of we can do other things which won't cost anything, by the way. By the way, normally when something doesn't cost anything, it, it, it's not particularly important or it does cost something. Planning, uh, reforming the planning system will cost something. A great deal, actually. Okay, not tens of billions, but it will cost a significant amount of money to do. And it will also require an immense amount of, again, political capital being expended because there are vested interests which oppose it. So we're just going to reform the planning system. Everybody wants to reform the planning system. Everybody. Nobody says the planning system works, and yet it never seems to change. This whole thing she said in that, in that clip, uh, we won't be reckless. So what, your policy yesterday was reckless? So you, your own policy yesterday was reckless, but now it's not reckless. And if you go back to that policy and that position of 28 billion a year, whatever reason, let's say it's readopted ahead of the next election from day one, this is what we're doing. That's now reckless? Come on. So I, I don't buy any of this. I don't agree with what Karis Roberts says about, um, oh, no, actually, from day one, you can't do this. FDR did it from day one. The prototype for all of this, FDR did on day one. By the way, he also made cuts elsewhere. They cut, I think, pensions to veterans by 15% in 33 because they had to demonstrate, a bit like Reeves thinks, they had to demonstrate to, to, to people that they weren't going to completely let loose with regards to um, you know, fiscal, quote-unquote, rules, fiscal you know, conservatism. But, but, but Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves aren't willing to make the hard arguments around cutting something here or increasing tax there. So any increase in public expenditure is going to have to come from two places, growth or deficits. They're saying they won't do deficits, and they seem to think growth is going to magically appear, when in fact they've got this the wrong way around. We don't have growth because we don't have much demand. We need to raise demand through state investment. We're going to pay through state investment through taxing the rich and running, yes, small deficits. So I think this is a catastrophe, frankly. And I know people watching this think, well, that's just Aaron on Rachel Reeves and Keir Starmer. But this was the one policy where I thought really big, really transformative and clear water between them and the Tories. So I think this is really bad news. Let's stick with the FDR analogy for a little bit longer, because I see where you're coming from. You know, the first hundred days, you've got a lot of momentum. You want to get this thing moving as soon as you're in office. There are some significant differences though, right? So it, it, when he came into government, there was a depression. There was very, very high levels of unemployment. Yeah. There were lots of people who were ready to be employed to do this stuff. We at the moment in this country, we don't have high unemployment. Yeah, we've, we've got a cost of living crisis, but that's very different from the, the situation which, which FDR came into. And FDR, was this, that was a classic situation where any Keynesian would say, this is the time to borrow, shed loads of money, and spend loads of money because what we lack in the economy is demand. It seems unclear at the moment that the reason we have a weak economy is because of a lack of demand. It, it, it more seems to be stuff on the supply side. So, so the idea that you would sort of come in here like FDR and say, we can borrow loads, spend it instantly, and there's no real cost in terms of inflation or whatnot. Is there, are there not some problems with that analogy? That is, and it's those differences which is perhaps motivating Rachel Reeves to come up with a different policy stance. Inflation is a good point, Michael. But look, we're talking about twenty-eight billion pounds a year. You know, we're not saying we're going to spend several hundred billion pounds. I don't think twenty-eight billion stimulus in one year is going to massively amp up inflation. The IMF has said 
that <clears throat> inflation for 2022 was primarily a cause in this country of energy. We know, we know that primarily. Gary Stevenson disagrees a bit, but I think most people would say it's energy. We had it particularly bad here for a bunch of reasons. One being we, we generate most of our electricity from gas. About 50% of our electricity comes from gas in 2022. For Europe, average is about 25%. More likely to get it from coal or nuclear or in the case of Denmark, from wind. That was one reason why our energy prices went up significantly. I could mention nuclear in regards to that as well, but I won't. France could cap it a 4% increase because they get so much from nuclear. We couldn't, because we're dependent on gas. <clears throat> but the IMF is very clear that the reason why they upgraded projections for 2023 from, I think, 0.3% contraction to 0.4% growth is because, as you've said, there is rising demand, because workers' wages aren't actually collapsing as much as they thought they would or hoped they would. So they would be predicting that into 2023, the reason why inflation can't go down is because actually turns out workers like HGV drivers, bartenders, welders, these are the kinds of professions all of a sudden that are getting 11, 12, 13% pay rises. Uh, that's bad news if you're the IMF or if you're Jeremy Hunt and you want to get inflation down. Of course, they don't say that out loud, but that's what they're thinking. Now, your point here is that if we had a similar situation, say next year, then the last thing Labour would want to do would be to stimulate demand because that would mean inflation goes up again. I mean, I think you can mitigate that through a number of things, price caps on energy, uh, you know, big state intervention in regards to some of the sort of macro things that are costing people money. You could cut VAT temporarily, for instance. I think we should have done that a long time ago, by the way. So th there are ways around that. And, and fundamentally, Michael, there's two logics here. And I think the most important one for Labour is the political one. We can talk about the economic one. Oh, this would do so much to the economy. But the big one is the political one. Because when they stand for election in 2029, they're going to need to demonstrate they've done something with taxpayers' cash. Because from day one, week one, and I don't think people grasp this yet, they will be in the crosshairs of the right-wing media, and yes, the BBC, and yes, the new media, the right-wing new media, like Talk TV, GB News, LBC, because they will be in government. Blair knew this, Campbell knew this. This is why they were so unbelievably Machiavellian to an extent that they knew that if they weren't, they would be torn apart. I'm not saying you have to be like that, but it was a response to the kind of treatment we're going to see with Labour after 2024. And that has to be a consideration. Now, presumably, they think, well, we're just going to get two terms anyway. And I know I've put on a silly voice there to make them sound like they're all sort of dismissive and hoity-toity. Right now, that's a realistic presumption. But I, you can't, you can't bet on these things. I mean, if they are going to get two terms, then sure, you know, um, staggering this till the second, third, fourth year, fifth year of a, of a, of a government makes some sense. But, you know, don't, don't, don't count those, um, don't count those chickens until they hatch. We could have a rerun of the, of the 1970s, you know, Labour come to power, the Tories come to power, Labour come to power, because we're in a moment of high inflation political volatility, and no real clear consensus about how to run things. So uh, I think that presumption, which is probably why they've done this, by the way, I, I think that could end up being quite mistaken. The obvious way to say, look, there's an we've got some inflation, so we don't just want to borrow shed loads of money and spend it, but we do want to spend a bunch of money. The way you sort of square that circle is you say, okay, well, we'll pay for it actually by taxing the rich instead of borrowing money. But as you say, Aaron, they've ruled that out. I think that's, you know, the, my big critique of Labour is that they ruled out raising taxes, which will sort of massively limit what they can do. Let's go to our next story. These are two names you don't normally hear in the same sentence. Noam Chomsky and Piers Morgan. 
But this week, the two men were in conversation on Morgan's Talk TV show. They were discussing, among other things, relations between the US and Russia and China. And we'll jump into the chat just after Piers Morgan asked Chomsky what the Americans should do if China were to invade Taiwan. The morally correct stance is to prevent it from happening. There is no indication that China is planning to invade Taiwan. If the United States increases the escalation, they might do it. Uh, In that case, the bars are down. You can't say if you move on to war with China, we're basically all finished. But there's really no point considering a remote contingency when there are actual events taking place, like the U.S. escalation of the confrontation with China. China's not saintly by any means, nothing like it. But if you look at the facts, it's U.S. escalation. The U.S. has now enlisted, trying to enlist Europe in its confrontation with China by expanding NATO U.S. has expanded NATO to the Indo-Pacific region, turning it into an international military system under U.S. control. Uh, All of this is going on. We can, if we like, talk about the possible contingency of of China invading Taiwan, for which there is no indication that it could happen if we continue the provocation. Remember, the provocation is serious. It's both in the military dimension and in the commercial dimension. Quite openly, what I've been referring to is public policy, very open, and it is increasing the threat. You put nuclear-capable B-52s in flying distance to China with nuclear-tipped cruise missiles, that's provocation. Chomsky made two claims there I didn't know about, so I had to Google. The first was about NATO expanding to the Indo-Pacific. This is a press release from NATO's own website in April this year. NATO and its partners in the Indo-Pacific have agreed to step up political dialogue and practical cooperation in several areas, including cyberspace, new technology, and countering disinformation. Because global challenges demand global solutions, they have also agreed to work more closely together in other areas, such as maritime security, climate change, and resilience. Now, maritime security, thats that means the Navy, doesn't it? So you can see why um, that might be seen as provocative. Um, NATO had their first ever meeting, in fact, between NATO foreign ministers and foreign ministers from Indo-Pacific countries in 2020. So clear ramping up. The second point from Chomsky I didn't know about was the B-52s being stationed in flying distance of China. Um, Chomsky, again, is is correct. So in October last year, the US announced they would be funding an upgrade to an Australian airbase so that it could house six American B-52s, which are nuclear-capable airplanes. And let's see where the conversation went next. They would argue, of course, that it's defensive, that they're actually, these are protective measures. They're not provocative measures. They would argue that China's march to economic imperialism and their massive expansion of their military represents an existential threat if they misuse those powers. That's what they would argue. And therefore, what they're doing is protecting themselves and other countries from from nefarious behaviour by China. I would suggest distinguishing between Western propaganda and the facts. So let's take China's military buildup. 
This is reported regularly by CIPRI, Swedish Peace Research Institute. You can pick it up on the internet. You will find that China's military expenditures for the past 10 years per capita military expenditures are a flat, straight line. They have not increased. Of course, the uh, China has increased its uh, military as the population increases, but it's way below U.S. military expenditure. And the U.S. is far above in technological advances. So yes, and uh, China, remember, is faced with security problems at every border. The United States is faced with no security problems, but U.S. military expenditures dwarf. They're about the same as the next 10 countries altogether. It's a per capita far beyond China. So yes, uh, there is. And what, when we talk about this uh, economic imperialism, exactly what are we referring to? We're referring to investment and development programs throughout Eurasia, expanding to Africa, expanding even to Latin America. The U.S. is trying to stop them, has found no way to do it, except by escalating in the military and economic dimensions by trying openly, publicly, to try to prevent China's economic see, development. If you don't mind me uh, at the risk of sounding impertinent, but you sound very trusting of China and its motivations. No, not in the least. I said explicitly, China is by no means saintly. Plenty of criticisms you can make of China. But I would like to describe the world situation as it is, not as it's presented by US-British propaganda. So there's one point there I think Chomsky didn't get quite right. So he said China's military spending has remained flat as a proportion of its population. And I think, he, in fact, he should have said that China's military spending hasn't risen as a proportion of GDP. This is a graph from the St. Louis Federal Reserve using data from the CIPRI think tank, which Chomsky cited. As you can see, US military spending has been oscillating between around 3 and 5% of their GDP since the early 1990s. China has remained flat at around 2% of their GDP. So still a much lower proportion, but China GDP has 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 increased significantly in that time, so it will be more per person. In absolute terms, these are the world's top military spenders. Um, so this is countries with the largest share of global military expenditure in 2020. So of all military expenditure in the world in 2020, 39% of it was spent by the United States. 13% of it was spent by China. Now, of course, China has about three times or three or four times as many people as the United States, um, and you can see they're spending a much lower proportion of global spending on the military. Then you've got India at 3.7%, Russia at 3.1%, UK at 3%, which is probably more than we need to be spending with a population like our own, and down to South Korea at 2.3%. Increasingly, we find that some of the most interesting conversations um, and, and the deeper analysis of what's going on, they just don't happen on legacy media, right? And I'm not some cheerleader of Talk TV. Piers Morgan often gets quite interesting characters to talk about, you know, about with. Andrew Tate's interview with Piers Morgan, to me, was more instructive than the one I saw on the BBC, for instance. It was more instructive. I learned more. That doesn't really seem to be the, 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 the basis of most of the sort of long-form interviews you see in the media, if, if at all, in mainstream media, legacy media. They, they tell you what to feel, 
rather than what to think. I mean, telling anybody what to think is bad enough, but telling them what to feel is just, it's just daft. It's ridiculous. So yeah, it was interesting. And there are a few things I want to come back here on, Michael. The first is that NATO is looking at opening a liaison office in Japan. So that's substantially what I think, um, what Chomsky was referring to. They want to open for the first time an office in East Asia, in Japan. The French oppose it. So it's highly controversial. It's so controversial that, you know, one of Europe's two nuclear powers opposes it. NATO was founded as an alliance to defend Europe in the case of Russian aggression after World War II. NATO has never fought a war in Europe. Isn't that remarkable? NATO has never fought a war in Europe. It is called the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. I mean, Japan, if you look on a map, Michael, it's not particularly close to the Atlantic. Wasn't Kos- so just one second, th- just to, to clarify, wasn't Kosovo, wasn't NATO involved in, in, in Kosovo and in this sort of, sort of Serbian? I think if you look at the, le- the legalities of it and whatnot, I don't, I don't think that in terms of a, in terms of a dispute, um, I think it was more of a peacekeeping effort in terms mm-hmm. of a war. You're, you're looking at two, frankly, which were Libya and they might even say Libya wasn't, it was just, you know, you know, peaceful regime change. We were helping domestic forces. But the big one, of course, is Afghanistan. Yeah. Is the, you know, that is the big war against the sovereign entity, which is we, we don't want to be invaded. Kosovo is somewhat different. And of course, with peacekeeping operations, you're in a, in, a, in a very strange place. But frankly, Michael, the big military operations of NATO in their history, quite recent, Afghanistan, Libya, neither in Europe, neither anywhere near the Atlantic. So I can understand why the Chinese have significant misgivings around that. And then if we look at military bases worldwide, the US has around 750 military bases globally across around 70 countries. China has around three overseas foreign military bases. Three. Maybe five, two of which are unconfirmed in Asia. Three. One in Tajikistan, one in Djibouti, and I think one in Pakistan, which is a naval base which they barely use anyway. But clearly, it's a rising military power, and that that number will probably go up. And it's important to say, like Chomsky, that nobody here is saying that China are angels. But if we're talking about military asymmetry, 750 military bases versus, let's say, between three and five for the Chinese. So I think this is a really, really important point, and I think he makes it very well. And on the issue of Taiwan, this is a very, very, very complex issue. First of all, Taiwan has the right to, you know, uh, sovereignty. It doesn't deserve to be invaded. I'm not saying it's part of greater China or whatever. But the basis of the Taiwanese state is not comparable to something like Ukraine even. Nowhere near. Taiwan is an independent state from China because Chiang Chiang Shai-shek was the generalissimo. He was the the head of state of China prior to the Communist Revolution. He and the Kuomintang, the, the, the preceding government of China, leave China because they're routed by the communists and they go to Taiwan and that's their base of operations. And they, they viewed it as really a, con- a continuity regime from what they previously had on the mainland. Uh, when they did that, they inflicted uh, genocide, what was called the white terror. Around 150,000 people went to prison. Thousands of people were murdered, including, by the way, independence activists who wanted an independent Taiwan uh, from mainland China. So, so this idea that little Taiwan, they have such great democratic values, liberal democratic values, the history of Taiwan indicates something rather distinct. Now, Taiwan in 2023 is not the Taiwan of the 1940s or the 1950s, but before people start sort of trying to paint the Chinese as the bad guys and the Taiwanese and the United States as the good guys, things are a little bit more complicated than that. And it's not both sidesing. When I say that, I'm a journalist. It's my job to say that. It's my job to try and inform people and provide greater context, regardless of what idiots say on Twitter. 
Uh, finally, Michael, the implications of a, of a war between China and Taiwan or a, a Chinese occupation of Taiwan would be extraordinary. Taiwan presently produces 90% of the world's leading microprocessors. Uh, the leading chips in everything from you know phones to computers to the highest technology like robotics is generally fabricated by a company called TSMC, which is in Taiwan. Now, if there was a war and the and the fab labs that make those chips, those semiconductors, were destroyed or just simply couldn't get out into the wider global market, we would see a big global uh, downturn, probably not that far off, you know, if there were massive constraints in energy supply and oil. Uh, secondly, you wouldn't see much uh, development with regards to microprocessors and uh, electronic equipment, probably for several years. And this is why the United States is engaged in something called the CHIPS Act, which is really trying to repatriate, reshore significant amounts of microprocessor manufacturing back onto the American mainland, but also to key allies. They're doing that because they feel there's a very real possibility that China will indeed invade Taiwan. So finally, you know, it's very easy for us to speculate, oh, will they, won't they? Oh, no, they won't. Oh, yes, they will. When the United States is spending, I think, upwards of $100 billion on reshoring and um, friendshoring, as it's called, uh, microprocessor manufacturing capacity, they probably have a decent impression that over the next 10, 20, 30 years, Chinese quote-unquote reunification is probable, to say the least. I think people do think about China and Taiwan as if it's like Russia and Ukraine. And legally, it's very, very different, right? So, so barely any countries recognize Taiwan as an independent country, even the United States doesn't, because no one, the one China policy, the sort of ambiguity of it, as far as I understand it. So when the Republic of China, Taiwan is still officially called the Republic of China, when that was created by Chiang Kai-shek, the United Nations and the, the United States, sort of the international community, recognized the Republic of China, Taiwan, mm. as the real China. And it was only in 1971 that they switched to recognizing, you know, what we think of as the big China as China. Mm. And the one, the one China policy is, I think both accepted it, and it's called strategic ambiguity, because both parties agree there's only one China, but the government in Taipei thinks it's them, and the government in Beijing thinks it's them. It's not a Russia-Ukraine. Obviously, you know, Taiwan seems to have a pretty healthy democracy and, you know, rising living standards, and it would be a shame for it to be invaded. I don't want it to be invaded. The fact that the United States is, is preparing the ground for microprocessor production outside Taiwan, very sensible thing to do, by the way. I, I think that indicates there'll be lots of belligerent rhetoric on this, but I, I, think it's a, I, think, I think this is a qualitatively different kind of conflict to what you see with Ukraine and, and Russia. You'd have World War Three if China wanted it, and then the, the Americans tried to stop it. Because if you had, you know, fighting of the Chinese versus the American one-on-one. -on -one. I mean, you are looking kind of at World War III. Yeah, I think the Americans are aware of that in a way that, you know, I think in Ukraine, things can slide into unforeseen places. I think lots of modeling, lots of predictions, lots of intelligent analysis has taken place on Taiwan. It's something that US foreign policy makers have thought about for a very long time, whereas the whole Russia thing seems much more volatile and, and chaotic. All right, let's move on to our next story. With the sun shining in many parts of the country, it's easy to forget that for many... We've just come out of one of the hardest winters in living memory. After energy bills skyrocketed and the country was gripped by a deepening cost of living crisis, everyone felt the pinch. But for the two million British pensioners living in poverty, largely kept out of sight by frailty and illness, it was a real ordeal. Channel 4's dispatches spoke to some of them over the winter and it makes for pretty difficult viewing. We'll start with 76-year-old John, who lives in Sunderland. He lives alone in the house he shared with his family, including his parents, brother and sister. All of them have died. Um, he visits their graves daily, though. This is what his winter was like. In the old years, you just put your heat on and you forget about it. 
You know, I'd be worried about the cost all the time. Leaves me fridge, switched off. I've cleaned it out, look, spotless. My sister used to drink bottles of coke like that, see? That's the last bone she ever had. Look. And I won't, I can't part with it. My fridge has not been on since as well. This electricity's gone up and living, it costs living. I haven't had that on. I've stopped eating the yogurts and the bottle of milk, what I used to have in the fridge, I put it on the back step. Uh, to keep it cold because it is electricity in that sky high, isn't it? I'll just be paying standing charges because I'm not using any electricity or anything. That, these lights is never on on a night. I'll just toughen out, that's just the way I am. There, there it comes straight on. These bottles, colour gas bottles, they've gone up about £10 since last year. I see that if you use it like one bar, like I'm using it now, it usually lasts four weeks. Well, this is, I'm into the fifth week now. So there can't be much left. Next we can hear from Doreen. She lives in a tower block flat just a few miles away. She's 68 and she's only had two visitors in 38 years. I have had about three hours of heating. I tried to keep it off as long as possible. Because of the cost. And I mean, this, this room is a big room to heat. And there was a bit of heat through the door and all. That door's not very heatproof. You can feel a draft. You stand on the carpet and you can feel a draft. It doesn't help at all, no. You're putting the heat on for the birds. You haven't got it for free. If I had it for free, I'd have it on all day. <laughs> But you've got to pay for it, and the money's got to come from somewhere. Otherwise, if you don't pay it, they'll come and cut you off. That's what they do. I do go to bed early. I go to bed about 8 o'clock, sometimes half past 7. Just get warm that way. Listen to me, radio, company, getting no business, better sitting up and... Been a bit cold and watching TV or a DVD at the moment, like you know. It's more comfortable in bed with a bottle. Lovely. I could do it now. <laughs> Final clip we'll show you is, is Harry and Christine. They're from rural Leicestershire and have been married for 59 years. And he's 83 and she's 77. They got through the winter together, but only by cutting their meals. I can't imagine life without him. I mean, um... I'm continually worried about him, about his health, because I don't think we're, we're keeping warm enough. We don't have the heating on all day like we should do. I, I should have the heating on all day, I should, because I've got a minor heart condition, leaking valves. And they were recommended that you should keep the temperature at least 19, 15 and 12. It's got both, so it's in between. It's a very, it's a very difficult bungalow to to heat. Um, it's on, on a concrete platform, and we've got metal frames in metal, the, every frame. door frame is metal, and that doesn't help. It um, takes about a third more than a normal normal bungalow to heat. So you've got to cut costs somewhere. 
Because of the cost of living, I don't bake anymore. I don't cook as healthy a meals as I used to cook, I don't think. You used to love Christine's food. She was a very good cook. We used to have roast three times a week. And I miss cooking. I miss, miss, I used to enjoy, I used to love cooking. I always, always cooked a sandwich joint, didn't I? Yeah. I always have done right through my life. Don't do that anymore. Um, because it's too expensive. Electricity prices is just horrendous. Thank you, my dear. Shut any bed, please. Bed. Why should energy companies be making all this horrendous profits for their shareholders when the ordinary people are suffering? It's not right. There's, there's something wrong somewhere. So that was just a taste of that documentary. It's made up almost entirely um, of those four people just talking um, about their lives. I do really recommend watching it. Not, a, not an easy watch, of course. Um, Aaron, I thought it was worth us showing this because we, you know, when we talk about the politics of age on this show, um, I don't think unreasonably, sort of we often talk about property and how sort of voting is more sort of divided by age than it used to be. And that's a lot to do with the fact that, you know, across classes in a way, older generations are more likely to own their own homes and owning your own home means more to your financial security than it used to. But what I suppose gets mentioned less in political discourse is the two million pensioners who are living in poverty. And it's sort of, uh, they come up very rarely in political discourse. Yeah. Waspy woman as well, Michael, you know, and you're, you're right to say you know, it will be a weird place politically if you start saying that waspy women, people who have paid in tax for, you know, uh, decades and then get hung out to dry by the political establishment. I mean, that stuff is just heartbreaking, Michael. The government has, you know, everybody's the first job of government is to ensure, you know, defense of the realm, uh, you know, rule of law. I feel like government besides that has really three jobs, three core jobs Forget public service and all these other things, which obviously I believe in that. I think they should be socially owned. But core jobs, even if you're a free market capitalist, cheap food, cheap energy, cheap housing. And that's important whether or not it's people like that or businesses. Businesses need cheap energy. They need cheap housing because, you know, otherwise they've got to pay their staff an arm and a leg because in wages because they can't meet their rent. And of course, cheap food, because it's really fundamental. You can go all the way back to the 1830s. We have, you know, the Corn Laws are repealed because the ruling class, capitalist class, recognizes that um, the price of grain in this country was too high. We had to have imports to make it cheaper. They did that because they recognized they can pay workers less. But cheap food was core to their thinking. And yet we have food inflation of 20% per annum. We saw sky-high gas and electricity over the last year. And now we're being told by multiple agencies that actually energy prices will stay broadly where they are all the way through to the end of the decade. And of course, housing, I don't need to say anything about affordable housing. It simply doesn't exist in this country, whether you want to buy or, or, or you want to rent, particularly in larger cities where most of the jobs are. And, and this really just brings it home, Michael. And I think those, those key issues, like I say, housing, food, energy, doesn't matter how old you are, uh, you are affected by at least one of those um, and it's, it's, it's really grim to see. And then fundamentally, to finish, if you're a young, able-bodied person and yet it's cold, you can manage that for a winter or two. But at that age, in your 70s, 80s with a health condition, that could be the thing that, that takes you away. And it is remarkable, frankly, that we have not had, um, 
We've not had a real political overhead for this. We saw Liz Truss have to leave office because of a misjudged budget, you know, ridiculous budget. We saw Boris Johnson have to go because of eating cake, but realistically because he broke lockdown rules. And yet for, for something like this, there hasn't really been any political consequences at all. And I find that deeply revealing about the state of our politics and our media too. This probably will be a growing issue as well because the property issue that which, which, which we talk about at the moment, it is quite skewed in favour of not in favour, in favour of some old, older people. So the older generation at this point in time are more likely to own their home than the younger generation. And that, that, But when current younger generations get older and they still don't own their home, you're going to have pension and poverty on a different scale. Not sadder stories than that, but probably more people experiencing it because in this day and age, if you get old without having an asset that you're sitting on, you're going to struggle. And if people can't get on the property ladder and the pension still doesn't, keep up with need um, then you will have issues such as that only getting worse bit depressing let's go to our final story U-turns don't come much quicker than this Nadine Doris was on Talk TV this morning discussing the rumours that she was up for a peerage his honours list, which, you, which you're on, um, is now the subject of a great deal of debate. I don't remember the last time any um, parliamentarian or party leader had their honours list sort of, you know, investigated to such an extent. We're told that they're going to put you on hold effectively for um, the next couple of years, maybe, so that you don't have to cause a by-election. What are you hearing? Honestly, I, me, I hear nothing. I know nothing. I know what you know. I read in the newspapers what you know. But I do know there is there is a process. And, you know, the last thing I would want to do would be to cause a by-election in my constituency. The last thing I would want to do is cause a by-election in my constituency. So so what was going on there? The background, um, Nadine Doris has long been um, suggested as someone who is on Boris Johnson's honours list. So when you resign as Prime Minister, you get to give a bunch of honours to people. You can send them into the House of Lords. You can make them a sir or a dame. Um, Nadine Dorries um, was touted as someone who was going to be made a lord. Um, but to become a lord, you have to resign as an MP. And so what was going on is Rishi Sunak was saying, we don't want a by-election. So no current MPs can go, can get these peerages, right? Because that would cause a by-election because they'd have to resign as an MP to become a lord. Nadine Dorries says, well, the last thing I want is to cause a by-election, right? It's I don't want to cause a by-election, whatever happens, and there's a process. But that was at 10.42 a.m. By 4.30, Nadine Doris had changed her mind. She's quit as an MP, and a by-election will follow. Vanessa Feltz asked her what changed. So what happened during the course of today to change your mind? Well, I can't reveal everything, but um, so something significant did happen to change my mind. And you know, I'm not someone who's going to go, you know, blabbing out what that was immediately. I need to, you know, process a few thoughts and things. But um, so, yeah, something significant did happen to change my mind. And and I did do. And I think it's for the best because I think I heard you just saying before I came on, um, you know, two years. I think two years is a long time for me to be presenting a show on talk TV and writing a column in the Daily Mail. And I'm an author, you know, I publish a book a year and to be an MP, you know, come on, something's got to, to got to give. And I'm 66 and I've done, you know, I keep saying this, and I've done, um, you know, 18 years as an MP. And I did think I'd be retiring in two years, but there's this kind of new life opening up in front of me, along with a granddaughter. And so there are just other priorities and things to do. And I was, I didn't want to cause a by-election, but, but you know, I've got over myself, frankly, and it's um, it's time to do to do the right thing. 
I love the idea that the definition of doing the right thing is making more space for you to host your talk TV show on a Friday and then do your Daily Mail column. It's, it's, this isn't about me. It's time to do the right thing. On How is that the right thing? On what definition? Um, when I first heard that news, you know, that she'd resigned as an MP, I assumed that was to remove any objection to her receiving a peerage. So Sunak was saying, you can't get a peerage because then there'd be a by-election. She says, well, there'll be a by-election anyway, right? So you might as well give me a peerage now. However, the list is now out for people who will be going to the Lords and Nadine Norris isn't on it. Um, it does, however, include former Conservative mayoral candidate Sean Bailey, current Tees Valley Mayor Ben Hoochin, and former talk radio political editor and current Johnson press aide Ross Kempsell. Um, for their part, Jacob Rees-Mogg and Priti Patel have got a knighthood and a damehood, respectively, as have Michael Fabrican and Andrea Jenkins. And of course, the running theme here is blind loyalty to Boris Johnson. That's how you become a sir or a dame or a lord. And Jenkins' enthusiasm for Johnson was very clear. Um, this is from the day of Boris Johnson's resignation. We, we, the, the country will rue this day. They, they regret it like they did with Thatcher. Exactly. Yes, it's a, this will be a mistake. <laughs> What a strange time, Michael, that we had, you know, Nadine Dorries dictating, you know, the reform of, of publicly owned media outlets like Channel 4 in this country, saying that we should privatise, you know, organisations with a turnover of hundreds of millions of pounds a year. What a strange world. I, what I would like to say, though, Michael, is yes, um, you know, th these, these are people being looked after by Johnson. But my worry with all this stuff is that people say, you know, it's just Johnson. Johnson broke the rules, you know, Johnson the sociopath. David Cameron gave an MBE, if I remember correctly, to his hairdresser, okay? So the idea that like the peerage system and all this worked so well, and it was so fair and so honest until naughty Boris Johnson came along, utterly ridiculous. The fact that Ross Kempsell, who, Michael, I think, how old is he? I think he's like 30. The, for people who aren't aware, Ross Kempsell was the guy who had the interview with Boris Johnson in the, in the weeks leading up to the general election. And you remember when Boris Johnson said, oh, I, I like to paint buses. That was with Ross Kempsell, who went on to work for him, who's now going to become a peer. Um, obviously ridiculous. And that's an argument to scrap the peerage system. And I think to scrap the House of Lords. People say, make it elected. I wouldn't have a second chamber like the Commons. I would either scrap it entirely and, it, and give more power to uh, committees in terms of how we review legislation and, and formulate it. Or you have a house a bit like what you get in the US where you know we have historic counties represented by one representative each. But I think as it exists, the House of Lords needs to go. I agree with you. Sort of, uh, The problem isn't unique to Boris Johnson, I suppose, as in so many other instances. What's different with Boris Johnson is how explicit it is. So when I was looking for all of those names, I mean, they're all people who for the past two years we've been showing... You know, towards the end of the show, we want a clip which is ridiculous. It's one of those people sort of defending Boris Johnson on Channel 4 or Sky or whatever and making complete fools of themselves. And when we showed you those clips of Michael Fabricant or Dean Doris or Andrea Jenkins or whatever, it was like, why are they humiliating themselves like this? Why are they doing this? And it's very obvious because they've been told, presumably, um, that if you do that, you can become a sir or a dame when Boris Johnson ultimately resigns. So um, I, don't know, I don't know what you actually get when you become a sir or a dame. I suppose it's just, you know... It's, Put it on your gravestone, I suppose. Put it on your CV for the next job you look for. Um, let us know in the comments. Do you know what you get if you become a sir or dame? Are any of you sirs or dames watching? Let's end now. Um, thank you, Aaron, for joining me tonight. Michael, my pleasure. I'm sure you have a few in your in your DMs. Just to, to just to finish, Michael, 
isn't it crazy that Nadine Dorries is meant to be a full-time legislator and MP and she's saying, oh, you know what? I write a book and I do this <laughs> and I do that. Where did she find the time to be a, to be a member of parliament? Ridiculous. They're taking us for fools. And she wasn't just a member, she was a cabinet minister, right? She wasn't, she, she wasn't generally very well briefed. Um, thank you everyone for tuning in tonight. Have a fantastic weekend. Um, on Monday, I'll be back for another live show from 6pm. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com support.